Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to this episode of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Ford. This week, I'm joined by a very esteemed expert. His name is Dr. Brian McLean, and he's the principal clinical psychologist. He is incredibly knowledgeable on such a massive range of topics. Here we're talking about phobias. We do touch a little bit on sleep for the first seven or so minutes because that is one of his main interests and main focuses in his work. But then we move swiftly on to phobias. So are they different to general anxiety? Are phobias something we can overcome? What do all phobias have in common? What can actually help us address our phobias? And does getting to the root of our phobias matter? We discuss all of this and more on this episode. Don't forget to sign up for Owning It Real Time, which Dr. Brian McLean himself has endorsed, especially the guide for waking up in the middle of the night and struggling to get asleep. He says that it is um, exactly the kind of advice that he would offer in clinic. So there you go. You can sign up at the link in the podcast notes. And in the meantime, enjoy this episode. Dr. Brian McLean, Principal Psychologist with ABI Ireland. Thank you so much for joining me on Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hi, Carlin. Very happy to be here. Horik described you, he he couldn't say enough good things about you uh, as a most eminent expert in many different areas who he says he's learned a huge amount from you. So uh, no pressure. I think I need to teach Porik something about managing expectation. You know? <laughs> yeah. Set the bar low and you'll surely get over it. You know? Well, you are, I mean, you are an expert in, in lots of different areas. I know you have a particular interest in sleep. He said that you had done, you've done a lot of talks in sleep. And I think that's probably an episode we could do entirely on its For own. Sure. It's such a massive topic. But uh, just because that is your 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 area of interest, I would love to just ask you before we get into the the meat of the of the episode, what would you say is, has been your greatest learning in your whole journey that helps with anxiety around sleep? What do you think is is makes the difference? Really good question. A couple of things that I've noticed. Um, one of the things about sleep is that we, you know, we put ourselves under such pressure to get to sleep. 
and more and more there's research coming out about the value of sleep. Um, and that seems to even put more pressure. So we're trying to tell this brain, go to sleep. Um, or, you know, I really need you to sleep. Um, but in fact, uh, if we're resting, we're doing a lot of value to our body. Um, so I think it's really good to kind of not feel that we need to be asleep in order to be rested for the next day. Um, so um, when we're resting, when we're thinking about one thing that's pleasant or positive, when we're going through a list of the things that we're grateful for in life, the brain's waves are slowing down. And that slowing down, that body resting, that's restorative. And we don't need to actually fall into an unconscious state in order to get some of those benefits. So, so that's one way I think that people can take the pressure off. Another thing that's really interesting is if people wear a sleep tracker, which I know can put even more pressure on sleep. But sometimes when people feel, I'm not sleeping at all, I was awake last night, all night long, and then they actually look at the results of a sleep tracker, most people are really pleasantly surprised that they've slept far more than they've imagined. It's almost a universal thing. So realizing that the body is intelligent, that the brain is intelligent, that if we give it permission to sleep by doing some of the basics, like not taking tea or coffee too late in the day and um, not staying on the phone too late, and um, that if we give the body and the brain permission to sleep, that it'll actually sleep far more than we imagine, even though there are parts of the night that we seem to be tossing and turning. Do you think there's, I mean, I know there's there's entire podcasts and books and everything dedicated to sleep. We've almost built it up to be this holy grail that if if we're not getting really high quality eight hours and we might be misinformed about that, that everything's going to fall apart. Like we've created, sleep has become, become something we're almost intimidated by. Yeah, and we catastrophize. No way, this is a disaster if I'm not sleeping. I'm only getting six hours, I should be getting eight. Um, and that catastrophizing itself is, is is problematic. I mean, a friend of mine, is. she's in the throes of the newborn stage right now. And um, I was there myself two and a half years ago. And you really start to lose your marbles um, when you know you're 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 not sleeping at all. But I think part of part of it is maybe the panic about what this will do to you. What can someone in the trenches of having no choice but to be up several times a night? Because you know we can't we can't just send the baby off. What can they do to mitigate the impacts of that? Do you think so much of that is their perception of what it means to have less sleep, or do you think it's actually the lack of sleep? I think I think it's both. I think the perception is important. So what are the basics here? The basics are get up at the same time every morning. That's really, really hard if I've had a, a, a disturbed night's sleep because I'm exhausted and I really feel like, you know, uh, I'd love to go back to bed. Stay awake um, and kick in a cycle of sleep need so that as the day goes on, the, the, the reservoir of sleep need is building and building in the brain. So that's that's the first thing. Do that four or four to seven mornings in a row of getting up at the same time, even if I'm exhausted and I'm starting to kick in a sleep need every night. Go to bed at the same time. Um, and then one of the techniques we have that you are well aware of is we, we keep a notebook by the bed. 
So if there's something that's keeping the brain awake, something I'm worrying about, something I'm anticipating, jot it down in the notebook, close the notebook. You're telling the brain that's for later, that's for tomorrow. And now I go back to the business of trying to uh, rest my mind on one pleasant thing and, and, and hopefully the mind will fold into sleep. The brain, the body will get the sleep it needs in order to survive the next day. Okay, so we can kind of surrender it and trust the body that even with yeah. a, a crying baby, we will get the the bits that we, as much as we need to be able yeah. to to be able yeah. to function. That's that's yeah. great. And 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 I suppose part of this, a subset of this, Caroline, is the kind of the main message around our mental health, which is <clears throat> it's actually okay to not feel okay, right? Mm-hmm. So I may be tired in the morning, but that's going to be okay too. It's not pleasant. But it's not a catastrophe. It's not a disaster. It's all right to not feel a hundred percent. I can I can do this podcast and be tired. You know, I won't be at my very very best, but I can be okay. And and um, that's a really important thing. I think one of I don't want to be an old fogey giving out about social media, <laughs> but of course one of the things that's happening now is the social comparison that comes from social media, where we're seeing photographs of people at their very best. And I can't be at my all the time. Most of the time I'm average, which is fine. But I'm making comparisons between my 50% and the people I'm seeing on social media who are at 98, 99%. And so I'm coming off uh, second best every time I turn on social media. Social comparison is something uh, like I think it is at the root of so many different um ways that we experience anxiety i think we could we could do a whole series dedicated to it if if you'll be kind enough to come back to me at some point um but for now i would love to get into something i haven't really touched on before and that's the subject of phobias um now so the focus of this the the podcast the series in general has been helping people better understand and manage anxiety you know overwhelm feeling tightness in their chest anticipating future oriented things and um, generalized anxiety if you want to call it that but then some people message me and they say I would love for you to talk about this specific phobia and I've always been a bit unclear about the difference between just feeling anxious and having anxiety or a more clearly marked out phobia what how would you differentiate them so, so phobia is anxiety, but it's anxious, not anxious. Generally, it's anxious about a specific thing. It's fearful and avoidant of a specific thing. But it is anxiety, and the similarities with generalized anxiety are are, are very, very important. Um, so I suppose all anxiety is like the body's alarm system. And so anxiety is very helpful, Uh Alarm is very important. Our ancestors wouldn't have survived if they, you know, if they heard a rustle in the leaves and they said, Asher will be grand. They wouldn't have uh, survived to pass their genes on to us. We're only here because of our ancestors' ability to have anxiety. Our ancestors' ability to have a body that can go into alarm immediately, that that alarm system can override everything else and that they could engage a fight-or-flight response uh, that, that allows them to survive. So our, our brains are primarily self-protection systems. If you're sitting in Costa Coffee, Caroline, and you're enjoying a cup of coffee, and a lion walks in the door, 
you will be really, really grateful for your alarm system. You will scramble over tables. You will um, get out through a little window at the top of the toilet that you never thought you'd get out. Your alarm system is overriding everything else in your body. Now, if if we were um, animals, then we would go back to grazing as soon as the threat has passed. But the thing about human beings is we have a cinema screen in the head that replays, that reminds us, that asks us what if, that looks for any possibility of a recurrence of that fear. So you're going to bed that night. There is no way your mind is going to sleep because you're thinking of what ifs and you're thinking of the guy at the door and you're glad that you chose the seat that was further from the door and you're thinking, I'll never go to Costa Coffee again. You're thinking, I'll never go for a cup of coffee again. There was a lion in Costa Coffee. So the brain is imagining and recreating and replaying and wondering. And a week later, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. A week later, you might have difficulty leaving the house because your brain has replayed all sorts of scenarios arising from that terrifying event. So a phobia is a little bit like that. Say I have a fear of spiders. Okay, It doesn't really impinge on me that if I sit in a room and I know there's a spider in it, I feel really uncomfortable, but other people can sit in a room and know there's a spider in it and be okay. What I've done is this wonderful mind of mine that tries to protect me, that sets off my alarm system to protect me, has been playing and replaying all sorts of possibilities about spiders. The what-ifs, the, the story of the willow spider in Australia who bit somebody and she died. And so those images are terrifying. And the old brain, the downstairs brain, if you like, that old limbic system, it doesn't distinguish between a real fear that's out there and an imagined fear that's in here. So I'm building and building and building all the time a message back to the old brain that says spiders are worth running away from. Spiders need your fight or flight system. How do you engage your fight or flight system? It's triggered by overbreathing. When 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 we need to move quickly, when we need to get away from something quickly, we start to without realizing it, without hearing it, we start to breathe in more rapidly. It's rapid, shallow breathing. And that gets the oxygen into the big muscles and the arms and the legs. It's an ancient system for responding to threat. But when we don't need it, we need to get that alarm system to stand down. And one really, really cool way of doing this is by slowing down the breath, in fact, reducing the speed of supply of oxygen into the body. So, as you know, we would do things like practice 7-11 breathing. 7-11 breathing involves breathing in for 7 seconds. 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Breathing out for 11. One, two, three, so it can be six, deep. It just eight. shouldn't be too, like, rapid. Okay. It's slow. It's not yeah. rapid. It's not 
I don't, I don't even emphasize the deep breathing because in deep breathing, yeah, people that's go, the thing. Because sometimes people are afraid of it if they're if they're anxious. And so when you describe the scenario, which you know we're all familiar with, the idea of okay, if there's a saber toothed tiger or a lion, of course our body is going to react that way. Of course we want to like logically, we don't stand a chance against a lion who's going to rip our head off, but. And I've always been able to make sense of most of our anxieties when you kind of peel it back to that level. But if someone has like a fear, an intense phobia of of a little mouse, when, you know, we are probably going to be able to hold our own um, in the presence of a mouse, a mouse is not going to be a threat to our survival. How does someone reconcile those kinds of phobias? And like, is there always a genesis to them? Is there always that image that you say in the cinema of the mind where there was something way back when that made the brain maybe misfired something that said that this is a threat to be concerned about? Or can people just decide that something is scary that actually could never be a threat to your survival? Yeah. So there can be an origin story. There can be a trigger. And you know what? In order to overcome a phobia, we don't have to okay. know that. We don't have to know that. It's about it's about how we're relating to ourselves in the present rather than what happened in the past that really counts. We've got an upstairs brain and a downstairs brain. The downstairs brain, the one that's ready to respond to any threat. It's like a it's like a customs officer, you know, an, an American <laughs> customs officer that, that takes all threats seriously. Okay. So what you're saying is logically, we, we know that, you know, we could do well against a mouse. You know, there's nothing really to be afraid of from a mouse, but that's an upstairs brain activity. And we need to engage that upstairs brain, in fact, to respond to the downstairs brain. The downstairs brain is like a, a vulnerable inner child, if you like. And it's not necessarily kind of processing with, with, with logic and evidence uh, and, um, and so what we need to start to do is to engage the upstairs brain, maybe get a piece of paper and write down, well, what's the evidence that this is a threat that I need to run away from? And, and write that down. And what's the evidence that this is not a threat for me? And write that down. So we're actually not just dismissing uh, the upstairs brain out of fear. We're actually allowing that voice of the conductor of the orchestra of the head to kind of come to the fore. And we look at that evidence and we think, what would a wise person at least think in a situation like this? What's a wise response? And a wise response might be, my body is telling me to be afraid, but actually there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, and if I... Uh, start to engage in things like slow breathing, maybe I can start to dial down a little bit of this body's alarm system. It's a little bit like when we're afraid of something, we build a burglar alarm around the heart. And the more we're afraid, the more high-powered we set that burglar alarm. The burglar alarm is really useful. You know, if there is burglar uh, 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 invading our house, then the alarm goes off. And that's a good warning system. But what if the burglar alarm is going off because the wind is blowing the hard? Toaster. Or because a car is... Yeah, the toaster. <laughs> Very good. The, the, uh, there's a car driving by on the road. So 
what we need to know is how do I dial down and dial up that burglar alarm when I need to? And one of the things to do is to practice slow breathing. One of the things to do is to practice, well, what's the evidence? And what's the evidence for? And what's the evidence against? And what would a wise judge in the court case in the head actually pronounce about this? I think I'd take this conversation a step back, and I don't know if you can kind of insert this, but in thinking about anxiety and in thinking about phobias as an example of anxiety, one of the ways in for us is to kind of start to learn a little bit of emotional literacy. We spend a lot of time kind of asking our kids to go through school learning kind of academic literacy, how to read and write and use numbers and all that kind of stuff. We don't spend half enough time teaching emotional literacy. If it's even taught at and all. For me, I mean... that, if it's even taught at all. If it's even taught at all. And for me, the message is that anxiety is an emotion. And so how can I be literate with that emotion in myself or in others? First of all, I need to know that emotion arises in response to triggers. So if I'm being emotionally literate, then I know what my triggers are, and I have a plan, I'm prepared for them. And and one of the things about emotional literacy is to realize that if, if my plan involves avoidance, then the emotion is going to get heightened. Um, avoidance is the engine of anxiety. So So my plan really is about how to approach, how to stay with, how to be with. The real element of emotional literacy is to know that an emotion has four components, that an emotion consists of a thought, it consists of a feeling, it consists of a body reaction, and it consists of a behavioral response. And if you like, each of us have a kind of a wiring diagram for emotion, right? Uh, that we see something like a spider, we have the thought, I'm really frightened of spiders. I need to get away from spiders. We have a feeling called anxiety, fear. We have a body reaction. The heart starts to beat fast. There's a tightening in the throat. There's a sickening feeling in the stomach. There's a thought that says, I can't cope with these body sensations. And there's a behavior of standing on a chair or running or whatever. This wiring diagram, if we can actually start to step back from it a little bit and see it from what it is. It offers lots and lots of opportunities for diffusing the emotional bomb. I can diffuse it, for example, at the level of feeling. I can start to name the feeling, you know, that idea of name it in order to tame it. Uh, I can start to recognize that these feelings have a kind of a start and a middle peak and an end. And it's that phrase, this too shall pass. This feeling of anxiety will pass, and it'll pass a lot quicker and more effectively if I kind of stay or if I have a plan for gently approaching than if I, if I run and avoid. This feeling has a set of physical components. So um, this feeling has a set of physical components. So um, the, the alarm system in my body will always respond to slow breathing. Okay. Here's the thing. I can't be in a heightened state of alarm in my body and breathe slowly at the same time. 
In other words, I can't be moving a car forward with the accelerator pedal and slowing it down with the brake at the same time. So it's not that slow breathing is just some technique. It will always work. Mm-hmm. It will always work. Uh, if if heightened alarm is triggered by over-breathing, that's the body's accelerator. So slow breathing is the body's brake. You can't breathe fast and breathe slow at the same time. So slow breathing will always work. Um, and uh, uh, the, the difficulty with slow breathing is not so much doing it, it's remembering in the moment of panic mm-hmm. to do it. It's being able to stand back from my panic a little mom- a moment and say, that's called panic. That's called anxiety. If I engage my slow breathing now, I can actually dial down the body's alarm system. It could be dealt with at the level of thought and then, you know, setting up the evidence. What's uh, the reasons that I need to be afraid of this thing? What are the reasons that I don't need to be afraid of it? What would a wise person say in a situation like this? What's most helpful to me now and what's not helpful to me now? That's kind of engaging the upstairs mm-hmm. brain. And then it's, as I say, with behavior, it's about having a plan to start to approach this thing. And often with a phobia, what we do is we we approach, we have a plan for approaching the thing we're afraid of in a kind of a systematic way. We have a kind of highfalutin word for this called desensitization. You like right? exposure therapy, do so, you mean? It is exposure therapy. Now, exposure therapy is a very bad rap because back in the 60s, it was like exposing myself to all of the thing I fear and just in a white knuckle ride, you know, <laughs> staying in a room full of spiders, not to Exposure therapy is a very gentle process where if I'm working on a phobia, I'm in charge of the pace of exposure. If I'm able for the idea of a spider in a field very far away, then let's call that a kind of a four out of 10 level of fear. And we start with stuff that will be a one out of 10 level of fear. So it might be a cartoon drawing of a spider. And so, so that's obviously a picture of something that I don't have a high level of fear of. And so it offers me a lovely opportunity to master a relaxed response to that picture. And would you? And then we would move on to maybe okay. a photo. If and it's just for because yeah. it's something that came up again and again in the in the messages I got was like a fear of flying, um, which is you say there and I and I completely agree. You know, there's so many scenarios where I have felt anxious where I could retain some sort of control in an experiment and say I'm going to dip my foot in this mount today and see, and then I'm going to pull back. And even if I feel like going further, I'm still going to pull back just to like you know regulate that. But when you're getting on an airplane, like, first of all, you, you can't really go and charter your own plane to practice and you really are not in control of the scenario up there. And I think when it comes to a fear of flying, which is so common, it makes so much sense. You can't try and reason that it's not a scary concept to be hurtling through the sky if you really think about it and unpack it. So how would you begin to approach something like that that's unavoidable unless you're going to just never fly anywhere what would be your plan for that because i think that would be really um applicable for most people hold up 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, and, and avoidance, uh, the more we practice avoidance, the greater the fear is going to come, the greater the fear of the prospect of flying becomes. It, it, it is true that exposure is one of the strongest uh, methods that we have for kind of informing the brain. There's nothing to be afraid of here. And we can use the opportunity of exposure in a very controlled, gradual way to practice our relaxation skills. But it's not the only technique we have. One of the things that's happening in anxiety is that I'm actually anxious about my own body symptoms. So it's like, I get, into a, I get into the seat on the airplane, my stomach starts to feel a little nausea, my heart starts to beat uh, a, a little faster, I get, I experience tightening. And then my brain goes, oh no, here I go again. This is my anxiety response. This it's is happening. proof that I can't cope. Yeah, it's happening. This is a disaster. This is a catastrophe. I, I, I could start screaming. I could lose control. I could, I could have a heart attack here. My heart is beating so fast. So in fact, what we're doing now is we're being anxious about being anxious. We're being anxious in response to our body symptoms of anxiety. We're catastrophizing, if you like. And we're, we're flooding the brain with messages, I can't cope with my own anxiety. And that's not true. That's not factually accurate. So we can do a lot to familiarize ourselves with these ordinary, natural signals of anxiety. We can go into an anxiety, well, sorry, we can go into a situation, experience a little anxiety, and use this as an opportunity to practice a completely different relationship with the signals, these normal, natural signals our body mm -hmm. is giving. And um, if I can be in a social situation, for example, and experience a little anxiety, which is 
almost universal. We all can feel awkward in social situations. And start, instead of kind of running away from that or hiding that from that or dousing that in alcohol, if I can use this as an opportunity to say, oh, there's my tummy giving me an anxiety signal. There's my heart. I can notice it beating a little fast. Uh, there's my throat. It's constricting a little bit. And I'm okay. No need to panic. Everything is all right. So how do we get to that point of being able to step back from our body sensations? How do we get to that point of changing our reactions to our body signals? And one really, really helpful way of achieving that, as you know, is with a little mindfulness practice. What are we doing in mindfulness? Only we're becoming a sort of an observer to what's going on. Initially, an observer to what's going on around us. But as we sit and try unsuccessfully to rest our attention on the breath, the mind will wander. The mind will wander into thoughts. The mind will wander into feelings. And the instruction that matters in mindfulness is to notice that I'm thinking, to notice that I'm having a feeling, to notice a signal of discomfort in my body. And then to acknowledge that and return attention to where I want it to be on the breath. Within a moment, the mind will wander again. And so I'm noticing and picking up signals, not from the perspective of a frightened reactor, but now from the perspective of a neutral observer. If I practice that skill, in the comfort of my own home, I have a much better chance of sitting in an airplane seat and then my heart beats faster because my brain gives the message, I'm going to be hurtling through the air. And then I'll be able to sit back and watch, if I've practiced a little bit, that my heart beats faster in response to that signal. And I might even be able to say, there's my alarm signal. Now I bring my attention back to where I want it to be. I don't know no. if that makes sense, but mindfulness offers a whole other world in terms of how we respond to our Absolutely. anxiety. Um, and the whole idea of being anxious about our anxiety, that was always, for me, when, when I was really struggling, that was the worst part. It wasn't a fear of, will I have a heart attack and die? It was... I, I I'm so frightened of this feeling. Um, and I think when it comes to phobias um and 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 any kind of anxiety, really, we're we're almost trying to get to the point of we're trying to avoid the thing that causes the anxiety, but we're trying to avoid the feeling of anxiety as well. So, you know, you might think it's I've only successfully overcome this phobia or manage it if when I get to the point where I don't feel any anxiety at all. And I think that's doesn't need to be the goal uh like you say you know it's it's actually like if i think about sitting on an airplane like a core you know if i really start i'm not a particularly nervous flyer but if i start to think about it while i'm in an airplane i will or if it, the plane jumps a bit i will like you know jolt and i think it's really important to to be okay with the fact that you're just maybe bringing the anxiety down a notch as opposed to being anxiety free because that's such a huge ask of yourself so maybe it's just to be to be able to know that you can cope in the same room as a mouse or something, as opposed to feeling so relaxed that you're going to let it crawl up your arm. Do you think we're, we're expecting too much of Absolutely. ourselves? I, I think the idea of eliminating anxiety altogether, the idea that I can only be okay if I feel no anxiety, um, that's no way mm -hmm. to be in the world. 
if if I truly felt that in order to be okay, I need to feel no anxiety, then I would not leave my house. It's no way to live. We, the the real thing is, you know, what's the difference between courage and fear? And in the body, there's absolutely no difference between courage and fear. Fear is what I experience when there's something frightening and I run away. Courage is what I experience when there's something frightening and I approach. But in the body, they're the exact same thing. So, you know, we could think of somebody courageous as somebody who's conquered anxiety and has no fear. If there was no fear, there'd be nothing to be courageous about. Sitting in an airplane, uh, allowing the plane to take off, watching the signs of anxiety in my body, allowing them to be, not catastrophizing as a result of them. That takes lion-hearted courage. It's the exact same experience in the body as fear. I want to ask you about, I don't know if you've heard the, the term emetophobia, the fear of intense kind of fear of vomiting and being sick. Um, that's a, quite a hard one to to um, manage because you're you're not going to willingly eat like contaminated chicken to make yourself sick. And that's not something um, outside of us that's threatening ourselves. That's a feeling of being for me anyway and I do have that fear now I was reading up about it and I did I did like a little solo episode on this a few weeks ago about my I get really start to feel really panicked if I feel a bit sick going to sleep at night like if I feel a bit nauseous and maybe it's just indigestion because my mind is a little bit tired and I don't have that same uh prefrontal cortex you know it's not it's not at work to the same extent that it would be during the day I can't really rationalize it and say look it's probably just a bit of indigestion you're fine I will be so tired and feeling sick and being like, oh, and I won't be able to go to sleep and I'll be so afraid that I'll get sick and I'll be catastrophizing thinking, oh my God, this is, what if you're going to end up in hospital with a severe vomiting bug or food poisoning? And I, it's such a hard one because I can't be comfortable with feeling that sick. If I did, you know, if I had a, a vomiting bug, it's so awful. It's so horrible. Or when I was, when I was pregnant and I was sick with morning sickness, it's doesn't get easier really. Um, but that's, I think that's a fear of losing control more so than something tangible outside of yourself. Would you agree? And how, how would you approach that? I, I think there are two things about that. I think it's really, really difficult to um, respond rationally uh, when we're tired, when we're half awake and half asleep. It's almost like, as you say, the kind of upstairs brain Offline. is drifting offline and so all we've got sometimes is this kind of very fearful child within and so so first of all it's best i think doing this work when we're when we're bright and 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 wise and and, and at the best part of our day it's worth our while taking out a pen and paper and saying what are the what are the terrible things about getting sick and what are the what, what's not so bad about it Okay, so a terrible thing about getting sick is it feels awful. You know, I, I feel pale and sweaty and uncomfortable and there's a pain and so on. And another thing is a feeling of being out of control. What's not so bad about it? Well, it passes. 99% uh, of people who get sick, uh, who you know, who vomit, seem to be perfectly all right, or whatever the statistic is. I'm sure it's way more than 99% of people who vomit 
uh, are perfectly fine afterwards. Yes, it's unpleasant, but you know what? It's the body's natural response when it has something that it wants to eject. So if we didn't have this ability, um, then, you know, something that's bad for us would stay inside. So this is my wonderful, amazing, intelligent body just trying to protect me. So we, we, we set out all that we can think of, both, both, both kind of for and against, almost like we're running a court case in the head where there's a evidence for the prosecution, but at a certain point the prosecution rests, and then we say, okay, let's hear from the defense. So we get both sides out, which is very difficult to do when we're kind of fearful and slightly irrational when our upstairs brain is offline at night. And then we sit back and say, well, what's the wise voice in me saying about this? What's a wise thing to say? Um, and it might be, you know, this too shall pass. Uh, it might be it's not pleasant, but it's important. Um, and, and we try and hold that wisdom. We try and go to that wisdom uh, at, at moments of fear. So one of the things that people do in phobias, for example, is keep a, a journal or a, 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 a diary of things that are important to remember at moments of fear. What's my wise voice saying to myself at this time? Really, really helpful. I also love the idea of almost troubleshooting it in advance. So like not waiting until you're on stage to to try and practice how you're going to handle it, but to sort of step through it in advance. And I think that really goes against a lot of the way, you know, I would have been brought up anyway to, you know, don't, don't think about it. Like if I was nervous to get on a plane, don't, don't ruminate, don't think about it. But actually for me, there's always been something helpful in my tendency to catastrophize because I can kind of think, okay, well, what if, what if I do feel unwell or what if I do feel anxious in the plane? How will I handle that? And in a way, it's sort of hacking the fear uh, to to be able to cope better. It's running through it in your mind in advance. I know people say, oh, well, you're just worrying about it twice. But for me, I'm I'm actually allowing myself to consider what the feeling will be and dissolving it a little bit um, by doing it when I'm in a position of not being in fight or flight mode. Is that... Is that a strategy? Do you, do you think, Carolyn, that we're becoming a more and more emotionally illiterate society? You know, um, I'm I'm old enough to have come from a kind of a generation of parenting where, you know, if you if you went to your mum and dad and you said I'm bored, they kind of shrugged their shoulders and say, "Well, pity about you. Go find something to do." Whereas, as parents nowadays, we find it really difficult to tolerate unpleasant emotions in our kids so if, if the kids are bored we, we bring them to the toy shop and find them something that they can do or play with if a if a teacher years ago gave out to a child corrected a child and the child went home and the child said to the parents you know i'm, I'm sad because the teacher gave out to me the parents would give out to the child as well nowadays teachers are terrified to correct children because Parents can't tolerate sadness or disappointment or frustration in their children. And so we'll go to the teacher and say, you must not let my child feel that feeling. And so it, we're in danger, I think, of rearing a generation of children who don't know 
haven't got a big library in their in their memory banks of experience and in, in, in uh, experience of disappointment and frustration and sadness. And so, what happens in in the teenage years when we get a rejection letter from an employer or a rejection letter from a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever? Um, we don't have a, kind of a big bank of experience to fall back on that's able to say to us, no, this is called anxiety, it's called frustration. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of it about, <laughs> get used to it, it'll pass, it's not nice, but it doesn't mean that there's anything broken about you or damaged about you, you'll be okay, you'll get through this. If we haven't had experience of these feelings, then they must feel quite catastrophic in, in young adulthood. And so I feel anxiety and, and my brain is saying, that's a disaster. You must never, ever, ever feel that again. Boy, that was so unpleasant. And so I organized my life in order never to feel that. And so my life as a result is quite restricted. So there's a lot, I think, in this idea of helping young kids recognize, appreciate, understand unpleasant feelings like disappointment, like frustration, like sadness, um, and knowing that they're going to be okay and that they are okay, even though they're feeling these things. Yeah, I think there's there's a huge amount in that. And I certainly, in my own experience as a parent now, you know, we're, my son is two and a half years old. We're so afraid to get it wrong and, you know, give them anxieties and give them these um you know, pent up things that maybe we had as kids when our emotions weren't validated, but actually in our in our avoidance of it, we're not giving them maybe enough chance to feel frustrated or bored or disappointed or anxious or scared. Um, and it's, I guess it's a natural thing to want to swoop in and and it's a good thing to want to swoop in and, and like soothe your child. Um, but I'm certainly having to learn to like let my son feel a little bit of discomfort to learn how to cope with it. And that will go you know, so far when they're older. Um, but for people who are now adults and are maybe dealing with the, the phobias they've carried through, I would love to just really quickly look at some of what people said and see if there's anything here um, we could quickly touch on before I let you go. Um, so I asked people if they had any specific phobia questions. Like, I mean, do you think that all phobias, they're, they're all the same at the root? It's just the thing that they've decided that is scary or is there is there would you say there's like someone saying cleaning out drawers, little bits of dirt like these are things that I can't understand. I mean, I know it's kind of like not not comfortable or not nice, but I can't understand like an irrational. I personally have not experienced an irrational fear of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the, de it's the very definition of phobia is that there's an element of irrationality in it, isn't it? that the level of avoidance that I'm showing is out of proportion to the actual threat uh, that that's there from a rational point of view. Um, so um, they're, they're, you know, all phobias are different, all phobias have different origins, but there are commonalities. Um, and the commonality, I suppose, is um, avoidance. The more I avoid the thing I'm afraid of, the more... I'm getting a kind of a short-term reduction in the unpleasant feelings, and that short-term reduction is rewarding or reinforcing my avoidance. And so I'm setting off a kind of a, a short circuit in the brain that says, when I'm near the thing that I fear, I got to get out of there. Um, and 
So what? So you know, again, the commonalities are in terms of how we engage, um, uh, in terms of overcoming that. Not all phobias need to be overcome. Yeah. You know, I have a if I have a a phobia of something that's way off in you know Singapore. No, maybe I don't or like, need to yeah, go or a phobia. To I was you know. saying, like I have a, yeah. an intense phobia of snakes to the point that I will avoid going on a hike. Well, if they're in Ireland or the UK, you know, you're it's not going to confront yeah. one. Um, but it's maybe it's really yeah, or like a fear of yeah. a fear of sharks. Like you don't want to not be afraid of those. Um, okay. something that came yeah. up again and again is um, people who follow or listen who have kids who have have developed strong phobia so this person a nine my nine-year-old has an extreme phobia of vomiting and gets so distressed if someone even coughs around them um how do we i mean it's all well and good as an adult being able to apply all of these things how do we help a child whose brain isn't there yet yeah i mean i suppose the thing about um children in fear is um, one of the things that children do as soon as they're in distress is they look to the faces of their parents to see is the world okay? Is this thing is this whole thing falling apart? I'm right. And so the first thing I do when I'm working with fears and phobias in children is we start to work on the parents' own anxiety responses first. So are there worries that parents have about the world do parents experience the world as generally a safe and benign place or has stuff happened parents that has taught their brains to be watchful to be avoidant if if it if a child falls and hurts her knee the first thing that child will do is look up and find the face of a parent or a caring adult if that parent shows horror then the child's alarm system will increase and the, the the experience of suffering that the child will go through will be greater so it's the same with phobia when a child is afraid of something they're checking the faces of their parents to see if the world is okay and often the parent is concerned that the child is anxious so the parent can send back signals of concern, which the child interprets as anxiety, and so the child's alarm escalates. It's, a, it's like a short circuit between mm. people. So one of the first things we got to do is teach parents to manage their own alarm signals in their own body first, to practice slow breathing, to get ready for situations where they might show uh, signs of alarm, and to weigh up the, the benefits and costs of alarm and to maybe practice mindfulness so they're observing uh, rather than just reacting. Yeah. And I think that puts parents in a good position then to respond to fear in a child by soothing, by reassuring, by conveying signals of um, uh, calming and then reviewing with the child let's talk about what just happened there you know you coughed you're okay we can cough or we can be okay you thought you were going to vomit you know what let me tell you a little bit about vomiting vomiting is a really really good thing 
that our body has because sometimes our tummy needs to reject a thing that's bad for us. Imagine a world in which we didn't vomit. And so we can start to restructure and change the child's meaning uh, about the thing that they're afraid of. It's really, really hard for us to do that as parents if we're afraid of the child's fear. Does that Absolutely. make sense? Um, I think we could do a whole episode again. I, there's so many things that I'm making note of here that I will I will hope you will come back for to talk about um, anxiety, sort of the fear of passing anxiety on to our kids, but actually how we can, that that um, unspoken body language of anxiety could be a whole other thing um, for, for people who listen, who are parents. Um, but we're almost out of time. And I would love to just recap your you touched on several different strategies or approaches for for phobias um if you if we could just quickly again run through them to leave people with something that they feel like they can maybe put into action so there was the um the mindfulness when it's happened maybe maybe talk me just quickly through the things that we can do before or like as our homework when our when we're feeling calm and then a couple of things that you would go to when you're actually in the heightened situation Okay, so if I'm struggling with phobia, if it's restricting my life, one, I need to learn how to dial down the body's alarm system. And the best way for doing that is practicing slow breathing. Great thing about slow breathing is I don't have to practice it forever. A couple of minutes and I'm tuning my body into the idea of slowing down the body's alarm system. Two, mindfulness really helps. It helps me observe my own reactions to things. It helps me become familiar with the thoughts I have when I'm afraid, the feelings I have, and most particularly, start to become familiar with the body's alarm system so that I can begin to change the way I respond. The third thing is to keep a, a little record or a journal of times when I felt anxious so that I start to become more familiar with the ways in which the course of anxiety happens in the body, that I'm afraid for a little while, that it peaks and that it passes. Um, a really important thing to do is to have a plan for approach rather than uh -huh. avoidance. So this idea of gentle exposure therapy, um, starting off not with the thing that I'm afraid of, but a smaller version an easier version of the thing that I'm afraid of. It might be a picture of the thing that I'm afraid of. It might be spending time imagining the thing that I'm afraid of. It might be watching a video of the thing that I'm afraid of. But very not to bring about the full-blown body's alarm system, but to bring about a small amount of alarm so that I can use that controlled opportunity to relax and practice that again, and practice that again, until I achieve mastery. And then very, very, very gradually, systematically, build up more and more of the thing that I'm afraid of. Yeah, it's so helpful. I think something that is as, as a real takeaway from, for me here is, it's, and also on top of all of that, to give yourself permission to, you know, still have the anxiety, still bring the anxiety onto the airplane with you or wherever it is or whatever it is you're doing, still feeling anxious when you're sick. That's, you know, you don't have to not feel that way. Um, and just more, I guess, curiosity and awareness of it and knowing that it will pass and knowing that it makes sense for whatever reason in your in your brain and body, it makes sense um, that there's nothing 
terribly wrong with you or nothing you need to massively fix. You just need to meet yourself where you're at and 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 try these different approaches as a way to manage it. But I really, I love your your confidence in the around the breathing and how it's probably the most underutilized tool that we have. And when people are really afraid, they just think, oh yeah, whatever breathing, like if I, if I could I'd be doing that, if I thought it would do anything, but it really, really, really does help. And like that, that um idea of you can't have a car accelerating one way and, and slowing down, going the other way. It's not something we can argue with. It's something we just have to try and practice when we're feeling calm and then trust that it'll be easier to then apply when we're in a a situation where we feel more anxious because of that practice that we've done. Mm, Yep. So feel the fear and do it anyway, Caroline. (laughs) Dr. Brian McLean, um, I can't thank you enough. Like I said, there are so many different um, threads that we could have unraveled there and gone down different avenues. And I would love to have you back to this. You've such a great way of explaining um, so many different concepts in a very digestible way which is just so helpful when you're actually feeling anxious so i hope you will you will come back and and rejoin me but for now thank you for everything you've shared here around phobias my pleasure caroline keep up the good work What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. 
you can sign up right away for owning it real time and access the full library of 10 situation specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.